Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you, Sandy, for that wonderful long introduction. (laughs) I was waiting for you to say some more, but... My name is Mari, and I am an alcoholic. And my dry date is the 10th of August, 1984. And I am so grateful to be here at this wonderful conference of Crested Butte. Um, it was beyond my imaginings. I, uh, I'd heard about it from quite a few other speakers, and, you know, I, I thought about it, and it's just more magnificent. It's magical. That's what I would say. It's my, I was thinking about what Bill Wilson said. You know, our co-founder Bill Wilson said once that Alcoholics Anonymous is nothing more than documented grief. <laughs> but he goes on to write, in the big book, that we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension. And the things that happen when we put ourselves in God's hands will be better than anything we could have ever planned. Look at this. Look what we have. And last night when I saw all these children come in here, it made my heart smile and it made my heart ache because I thought, oh my God, if only my two little boys could have been part of that instead of going through what I will tell you about and what is a big part of my story. I have people to thank here. I wrote them down because the memory is not great. Um, I'd like to thank Carolyn so much for all your emails and for everything you did and coming to pick me up. And um, Pat and Sandra and Gwen. Um, I'd like to thank Tom, who's a wonderful cook. Thank you, Tom. (laughs) And great cameraman. And... um, Debbie and Larry for their home for dinner last night. Elaine is the first. Are you here, Elaine? Elaine called me first to come and uh, to ask me to come and speak last a year ago or more, and she was the chair. But her husband died, and I'm sure he is here in the spirit, Elaine. So thank you. And um, Claudia and Rick took me for dinner tonight, and Karen for the wonderful basket. Um, so thank you, and Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's great to see Lee and his beautiful daughter, Hannah. It's great to be here. And I will share a little of what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. Alcoholism has always baffled me. It baffles me as much today as it has done, as it's always done. But I truly believe that I was born with the illness of alcoholism. And today I see people who are sober, dying of the illness of alcoholism. And they die of the illness of alcoholism at 15, 25, 30, 35 years. And they die of the illness of alcoholism because they forget to do the things that we're supposed to do. They lose hope. They lose faith. They stop coming to meetings. They begin to do the things that I used to do before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. They begin to isolate. And this alcoholism is a terrible illness. And I am so happy that I have found a daily reprieve, and I know it's contingent on my spiritual condition. 
It says in more about alcoholism that no, no person likes to think he is mentally and physically different from his fellows. Well, you see, I always knew I was mentally different from my fellows. You know, I always knew there was something wrong with me. I knew I was born with something wrong with me. And the reason I knew there was something wrong with me is because people were always saying to me, there's something seriously wrong with you. <laughs> and I had no idea what it was. You know, I was born in Glasgow, Scotland, and I was born into a, a really nice Catholic family. Uh, they, I was different from them in every way. I was born on high alert. <laughs> so consequently, my family were very nervous when I was around. <laughs> and I never had any peace. I was restless, irritable, and discontent. I never knew how to sit down, and from I was a baby, I never stopped moving around. And I caused everyone great problems. Now, in my family, there is heavy drinking. I don't want to call my grandfather an alcoholic, but I will tell you that every Friday and Saturday night, he would go to the bar. And every Friday and Saturday night, he'd come home, and he was drunk, but he was pleasant drunk. And on a Sunday morning, I see him sitting holding his head, and I say to him, what are you thinking about? And he said to me, I'm pondering the immensities. <laughs> and I was to ponder the immensities until I almost disappeared into my navel thinking about them. <laughs> you see, alcohol used to do for me what I wanted. In the beginning stages, alcohol gave me a change of personality. I was an introvert. I was socially inept. I did not know how to behave with other people. I always felt as if there was something wrong with me. I always felt as if when you looked at me, I didn't quite measure up. I always felt so different, and I didn't know what it was. And my family didn't know what it was. And I never knew how to fit in with the rest of the world. So when I found alcohol... It gave me a change of personality. I belonged. I felt like you. I loved you. <laughs> I could listen to you and be a part of. I had a change of personality. Now, I needed that way back then. But what I did to compensate, because I did not know that alcohol would work for me the way it did, is I began to develop defects of character. And these defects of character allowed me to live in the world and feel that I had a little edge over you. And what happened to me is I went from being an introvert to being a very obnoxious young lady. I was educated by the Franciscan nuns. I did not do well. <laughs> I did not do well. And when I was, although I thank God for them, because I'll tell you, they threw me out of school when I was 15. And I've been able to achieve a lot of things in my life with the education those nuns gave me to age 15. And what happened was I had developed this, I don't know what you would say, I would say it was a, um, a wonderful way of behaving that I made normal people behave like morons. <laughs> they just... I just seemed to change the way they acted. And these nuns did not 
take well to me. And when I was 15, I was sitting there and I was not paying attention. And I don't know if you know about the Franciscans. They used to have these big sleeves with weapons inside. (laughs) And uh, one of them took a ruler out and hit me over the fingers. And I figured if she could give it, she could take it. (laughs) But here's one of the learning experiences that... We got a little wake up, guys. When I was listening to David a little while ago, and he spoke about his name being the same as the other person's name who was, who was taking the booking, I thought, aha, coincidence. Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. I truly believe that. And the coincidences that have happened in my life have been amazing. And it seems to me as if they have led me through life to where I am meant to be today. And it's an amazing thing. And back then when that I was thrown out of the, the, the convent, they called my mother, my long-suffering mother. You know, I, I talk about my mother because I loved her. My mother was a lady. She always wore a hat and she had on gloves. And she used to, when I was still living at home, she'd pretend to read the paper and she'd be looking at me from behind the paper like this. <laughs> And I used to say to her, what are you looking at? She said, I don't know where you came from. (laughs) And I don't blame her, because I didn't either. uh, But anyway, they said they were sending for my mother, and uh, I had to sit outside the mother superior's door. And she said, while you are waiting for your poor, suffering mother... (laughs) Memorize that thing above my door and it may do something for your measly little life. (laughs) And I looked at this thing and it said, Of courtesy it is much less than courage of heart or holiness, but in my walks to me it seems that the grace of God is in courtesy. And way back then I wanted nothing to do with the grace of God and nothing to do with courtesy. But many years later, at age 40, coming through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous from the gutters of Miami. You were to give me courtesy that made me feel one more time like a human being. And the great courtesy you extended to me this weekend, this whole week. And it was the grace of God that brought me here. There's no doubt in my mind about that. So that came true. My life from then on in was about trying again to fit. I wanted to fit. I wanted to people, people to like me. I wanted people to love me, except I don't like people. <laughs> so that is extremely difficult. And I made every effort to like people. And um, I, be, I went into nursing to study my RN. I, was, I had a high IQ, so they let me in at 16 and a half. And um, I got bored with nursing. I left nursing. And eventually I went to London, England, and I joined British Airways when I was 21. And I had on the British Airways uniform, and for the first time in my life, I felt as if I belonged somewhere. That uniform to me was like a persona. It was an acquired persona, and it made me have some self-esteem. Self-esteem to me is what is beneath every defect of character I have. It is a problem with self-esteem that gives me my sensitivity, 
that gives me my resentment, that causes me to behave the way I do, it all comes down to that basic low self-esteem that I just seem to always have had. So I had on this British Airways uniform. I had a wonderful job. I was flying all over the world as an overseas escort. I did not serve meals. I was in uniform. I would take sick people to Japan, way out to the Far East, to Hong Kong or to Africa. And I'd come back as a passenger or I'd fly out and get them and bring them all back. And um, again, as I say, it was the most wonderful job, except I don't like people. (laughs) And I am on a plane and I have panic attacks. And I'm running into the powder room on the aircraft to have a quick panic attack because it's no fun if you don't like people, you're nervous around people, you're on high alert and you're, you're in this little aircraft. So things were getting very difficult for me. I had lived 21 years, now 22. And, you know, it says in the big book that um, our problem is self. It's our self manifested in various forms is the root of our problem. It says we've got to get rid of this self or it kills us. How do I get rid of self? What is my problem? Is my problem nature? Is my problem nurture? I don't know what's wrong with me. But you know, I was to give myself lots of advice, and I used to speak to myself. It's like when I used to go to Ireland to visit my Irish relatives, who are all like way out there, and even they used to say to my mother, she's not right, you know. And if you're not, <laughs> and if you're not right in Ireland, you're not right anywhere, you know. <laughs> I mean, Ireland's an open-air asylum. We all know that. (laughs) So I knew I was really done, you know. And when I'd go to Ireland, they'd say, it's herself. It's herself is here. So I used to say to self, self, little bit of advice here. What is it this time? How are you going to fit in with this crazy world? Get married. If you get married, you'll be well. If you get married, you'll be like all these other normal people. You can have children, and you'll fit in. And you'll have someone who loves you. So I went about looking for someone to marry, and I found someone very nice. He was beautiful, cultured, a real gentleman. He had money. He was a lovely, lovely man, very sophisticated, very dignified. So I married a very nice man, and he married a figment of my imagination. (laughs) And he took me to live in Kingston, Jamaica. And uh, I had everything I could ever want. I had my BMW, and he had five homes on the island, and uh, everything that should have made me happy if I was not born with the illness of alcoholism. If I was born normal, it would have, everything would have made me happy. And after everything I ever wanted was when my little boy was born. And this is the grand conundrum for me about this horrible, devastating, soul-destroying, family-destroying, respectability-destroying illness called alcoholism. That the most precious things to me were the things I had to lose because of an innocuous-looking fluid over which I had absolutely no control and which had the power to induce temporary psychosis in me to make me feel that I was something I was not. Because after a year, my first child was born. 
And when I looked at that baby, my heart filled up. And I thought, I will never leave you. I love you so much. You are so beautiful to me. And just after that, a few days, I thought I was going insane. 25 years of walking the earth and trying to fit in and not knowing what's wrong with me. And I think this time, this day, I'm losing it forever. And I'll never come back. And I truly felt I was losing control. And my husband called doctors. They wanted to give me Valium. And a friend said, give her a drink. And I had never drank. And Jamaica has 151 proof rum. It is beautiful. <laughs> I drank that 151 proof rum and it went all the way deep down inside of me and wrapped itself around every piece of raw nerve ending I had within me. And for the first time in my life, I had what Dr. Silkwood talks about in the big book. He says men and women drink because they like the sense of ease and comfort that they get. He goes on to say it's the only normal living they'll ever know. And that's what alcohol did for me. It was magic. I had found my magical elixir. My genie in a bottle. And I immediately drank on a daily basis. And I drank copious amounts of alcohol. And I continued drinking like that for four years with no effect. And then... The cucumber became a pickle. <laughs> and I began to have the alternate personality change, and I became obnoxious. And my second son was born, and um, I loved that little boy, but by now I'm a chronic alcoholic. And um, thank God nothing was wrong with my children. And um, I got into a lot of trouble. And uh, one day I attacked a dry cleaner who had um, not done my clothes to my recommend, you know, where I desired. And in Jamaica you do not do that. You don't attack the locals. And um, they told my ex-husband, they told my husband and his parents. And his parents came to me and said, we don't know what's wrong with you. You go to the country club, you cause a lot of problems. You're behaving differently than we've ever known you. Something is going on with you. They didn't know how much I drank. They said, you don't believe in God. You don't, you, you're born a Catholic. You say you don't believe in God. You need something. Something's wrong with you. Now, my husband had developed a tick that all of my four husbands had. <laughs> and I'm the common denominator. <laughs> And what happened was my husband, he used to take me to parties and I'd say I would behave and I'd dress up and I'd go in there looking okay. But you see, now I don't know if one drink, two drink, three drinks. I don't know which is going to do it for me when I will lose control and act like a moron. And um, I used to behave badly. I'd go up if he was dancing with anybody and break them up. And um, he'd take me home and he'd lecture me about how to behave and uh, I would say to him, if you drop asleep tonight, I'll kill you. Consequently, he would be very tired. He wasn't able to drink more than two drinks and become a fool. And so he'd sit and go, watch me, and he'd do this. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes he'd pass out, or I'd pass out, and he'd go and lock himself in the room. 
And that was how our marriage was going. And one night he did not pass out, and I hit him over the head with a piece of mahogany. And he had no sense of humor about that. <laughs> Absolutely none. And he called my mother and said, there's something seriously wrong with your daughter. My mother said, there was always something wrong with her. <laughs> You know, eventually I left that marriage. I tried to... Uh, I was living in Jamaica. I had the two boys because I told him if he took the boys from me. And I had my moments of where I was quite lucid. I remember uh, there was a cricket team came from England. And they came out to play the West Indian cricket team. And one of the, I must have been uh, quite okay one night when I met this, um, the captain. He would be knighted by the queen. He was Sir, we will call him Sir Cricketer. <laughs> and Sir Cricketer must have had some serious issues because he was attracted to me. And he asked me if I would attend a function in the, up in the hills for him that was being held for the visiting cricket team. And I said, I'd love to. So we're walking into this function and he says to the host, thank you for having this party. I don't know. You said I could bring someone with me. I don't know if you know Mary. And the host said, Noah, she's more famous than you, man. <laughs> Infamous. I lived on Hope Road in Kingston, and just across the road from me lived Bob Marley. And he, um, he lived in this old great house that um, his record producer had given him, that had been in that record producer's family for like 400 years. And I didn't like Bob. I thought he'd lowered the tone of the neighborhood with his Rastafarians and his ganja smoke, you know. And I didn't like Bob because I thought he was a pothead. And he didn't like me because I was a drunk. Rastafarians do not like alcohol. And, I, and he was a great humanitarian, you know. He used to feed all these people. I was selfish, self-centered, full of self-will run right. I did nothing for nobody. It was all about me. My illness was all about me and how I felt. Anyway, one day he got one over me, and I was in the gas station. He had a BMW, I had a BMW. And um, he said to me, I was, what I can remember is teetering, trying to look sophisticated with my cigarette holder, half in the bag, waiting for them to fill my car. And he was there with his two Rastafarians waiting outside, and he said, hey, you, you're a hedonist and a narcissist, and you don't care about anything but yourself. He said, you think you're so smart? What does BMW stand for? I said, Bavarian Motor Works. He says, no, man. It means Bob Marley and the Whalers. <laughs> Little moments of joy I can remember. And uh, eventually I left the island. I took my two sons. Uh, my ex-husband, he, he got married again. He, uh, he didn't want my boys to leave. I told him if he didn't let them leave, I would publish something in the paper. I never thought about my boys. I should not have been allowed to leave the island. And I left them and I went to Scotland. And they told me about my drinking. And eventually a man called me who lived in Canada. And he gave me an option, which I've always loved. I love getting married. 
I've done it with alarm and regularity. <laughs> Drunk and sober. Um, the only thing is I have no follow-through whatsoever. <laughs> I, I fall in love, and him and I are like Velcro. <laughs> and then after about six months, the thrill is gone, and I'm off looking for that ding-a-ling-a-ling someplace else. <laughs> and he took me to Canada, and he took me to Alberta. And when we landed, it was minus 40. And uh, I also know I'm shaking so much in the morning I can't get my drink up. And um, I get a job as a pharmaceutical rep. And um, don't ask me how I got that. You know, we alcoholics, we have a, I, had a, I had amazing willpower, except when it came to alcohol. And I'm there with this nice man who married me and took me to Canada and my two boys. And um, after six months, I sent him away. And um, as I always did. And it was just me and my two little boys. And I was trying to hold down this job. I was getting no financial support from anywhere. I was in a strange country. I was doing my best. I can honestly say to you today, I was doing my best. I was taking Valium and Librium. And I was drinking. And I wanted my little boys to have a place to live. A nice place. And uh, they'd come home from school and I'd be lying drunk. And sometimes they'd wake up and I'd be drunk. And sometimes they were, um, at this time they were 6 and 11. And my little boys, um, sometimes they'd wake up through the night and I had brought someone home. And they'd say, who was that mummy last night? And I'd say to them, you were dreaming. You were dreaming. I made my sons question their reality. And I tried to give them a nice Christmas. And I'd be drunk before the end of Christmas. And I'd drive with them drunk in the car. And um, eventually I ended up in detox. And in detox, again, one of those amazing coincidences. You know, the man who 12-stepped me was a Metis. A Metis is an indigenous native and French. That's what Metis are. The person who first, the people who first helped me were not in AA, but they were alcoholics. And they were in that detox center. And I was having DTs. And I was shaking so much, they would hold my soup to me. It was just me and five native Canadians. And when I began to get well, they told me that they drank because their spirit was broken. And I realized at some level my spirit was broken. I did not know I had a spiritual illness. I did not know that I had separated myself from God. I did not know that I was drinking spirit, but I was taken in the wrong spirit. I was to find that out when I came to you. And I went back to, when I got out of there, I went back to Jamaica. And um, children's father asked if they could have them for a week, and they were gone for 13 years. And uh, I could not believe he'd take my boys. And because I am selfish, self-centered, I'm a hopeless drunk, but I'm arrogant. I don't think about what's best for my boys. I went and I got a police jeep, two police jeeps with my custody order. 
And we drove up to the big old great house where my sons were with their father. And they were locked behind this great big grill. It was a massive great house. And it had grills all around this big balustrade. And it had all these steps leading up to this entrance. And I was up there and the, the police are sitting in their jeeps with machine guns. And I said to my sons, bring the key, your daddy's trying to keep me, keep you. And my son, my eldest son said, I don't want to come with you, mommy, you're a drunk. And I've told daddy, and you're going to kill my little brother and me in the car. And I don't respect you, mommy. Stop drinking. And the gardener came and threw me down the stairs, and the police pulled out the guns. And I knew that I had to leave. And I went... And I took two bottles of Valium and two bottles of 151 proof rum. Enough to kill a horse. But alcoholics don't die easy. When someone says to me, if I drink again, you'll be dead, I say, you wish. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us live forever drinking. And they found me, they pumped out my stomach, and the next day a psychiatrist told me something that was intellectually correct, very observant, and most definitely relevant to my condition. The psychiatrist said to me, you mustn't do that anymore. <laughs> when I, uh, I got out of there, I, I, for a while I lived in an old run-down hotel in Kingston, and then I had to leave the island, and I went to Miami to drink myself to death. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to drink myself to death. And I, um, I got a little apartment. I, was, I knew nobody in Miami. And I would drink and I'd pass out and they'd come in and steal my furniture. And I'd drink and pass out and they'd come in and steal my clothes and little pieces of jewellery I had. And they took that which I had to give and that which I did not have to give. And in the end I had no money left to pay my rent. I tried selling my blood to buy liquor. And in the end they threw me out and I was living at the bottom of Lincoln Road on Miami Beach. And that is why when I stand here today, in this beautiful crested view, amongst all you beautiful people, that once upon a time I never thought we would mix, because I was so outside of society that I did not know how to look at anybody in the eye anymore. I had lost contact with the good in the world. I was a child of the night, like Bill Wilson used to say. He'd say we were children of the night. And there is no road from there to here. There is none. And there is no words I have to tell you about my experiences there, except that I would stay awake at night and drink in the day. The only thing that could go on my feet were a size eight and a half rubberized, the old-time flip-flop. And because of the heat and the rubber, they had to be dug out the soles of my feet. And that is where alcohol took me. Alcohol, we laugh a lot in here. It's a terrible illness. It's a dragon that will take you and shake you and remove everything of worth in your life. It will take away your self-respect and your self-esteem. It will leave you completely and utterly godless. It will leave you in the dark. I panhandled off an old woman who used to live in Jamaica and now lived in Fort Lauderdale. She was English. And she contacted my family, and my aunts came, and they sobered me up, and they wept. And um, apparently, at the same time I was living on the street, 
my father, who had just retired from sea and had never drank. Here I went for a walk. He said to my mother, I don't know where my lassie is. Nobody knows where she is. Nobody knew where I was. I don't know where my grandchildren are. And I'm having trouble breathing. And he went for a walk and dropped dead in the street. At the same time I was living on the street. Another one of those coincidences. And I got to Canada, I went back to Canada and they started putting me in the mental institutions. I met a man, he tried to help me. I tried to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was a retread in the mental institutions. And um, the last time I was in, and you know, they used to bring AA into the mental institutions. But I, I don't know about you, but I love being institutionalized. I institutionalized so well. It's a shame, you know. And because when I come in, I can be very aggressive. And they will come and they will sedate me and give me sedation for make me sleep 22 hours a day. And they'll wake me up for meals. And then eventually they will take me off that dose when they don't think I'm going to kill anybody or kill myself. And then eventually I just have enough that I can walk. You know, we get so much medication. I mean, some of the greatest joy and fun we have in there is watching someone who's full of drugs drop their cigarette button, their paper slippers, and they're too zonked to do anything but watch it burn. You know? and, and I love that life. I love that life. We all knew each other. And... Um, I had a schizophrenic that was in there permanently, and him and I got on very well. And uh, he'd share a little bit of his medicine when we could. But that wasn't often, because we were watched all the time. But anyway, the last time I was taken in there, I was taken by the police. And I was in a lot of trouble. And the psychiatrist, Dr. Milliken, who kept me alive, I believe, to find AA. He, he diagnosed me with so many diagnoses, I don't think he had any left. And in, the, and in the end, because and I, I always lied to him, I never told the truth. And in the end, he, uh, he said, Mary, I've got to write something to keep you out of uh, prison. He said, uh, I'm going to present, your, your uh, lawyer has asked me to write this to present it to the court. And he let me read it and it had three diagnoses. Chronic alcoholic, abnormal personality and depressive. And those are all true. Those are all true. I went to court and the prosecuting attorney wanted to put me away and the defense said, Your Honor, this woman has suffered tragic social circumstances. And I was a tragic social circumstance until I came to you. One night I was drinking myself sober. Have you ever been there? What a place to be. You're drinking yourself sober. I had gotten the place to the place where I absolutely had to drink. I was beyond human aid. It wasn't doing anything for me. I wasn't even throwing up anymore. I was just, my organs were just all going and I don't know what they were. I'd lie on the ground sometimes and I'd have a headache so bad I couldn't sit up. And I'd be trying to pour liquor when I was lying on the ground. It was the phenomena of craving that I didn't know. Anyway, one time I was drinking myself sober and I picked up the phone and I phoned AA. And a man called Stan came and he's the Metty. And I travelled halfway around the world looking for a solution and somewhere to belong. And here is this man who's a native of this America. And he brings me the message. 
He told me his story. He said, let me tell me a little bit about yours. And I told him. And he said, Mary, I think you're one of us. And nobody had ever said that to me before. And because I'm terminally unique, I said, Stan, I know I'm an alcoholic, but I'm also nuts. I have a psychiatric report that says I'm nuts. He says, Mary, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is like 12 adjustable wrenches. They fit any nut that comes through the door. (laughs) He made me laugh. He made me laugh. I had one slip. My dry day is the 10th of August, 1984. On the 9th of August, 1984, Stan and some other members came and took me to a meeting. I was in bad shape. I was in very bad shape. I've been trying to come. I was in such bad shape, they told me I was shaking so much, strangers were waving back at me. (laughs) (laughs) And that night, a little girl from Alcoholics Anonymous spent the night with me, and the next day she said, I'm going to leave you now, because my sponsor said you're a loser. And I only stick with winners in Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I go, I'm going to ask you to kneel down and say the third step prayer. And I said to her, I kneel for nothing. And then something said, think of your children's eyes. And here's what I had in my mind's eye. The Christmas before I was on medication, I tried to go to Jamaica to see my boys. I called my family in Scotland and they called my ex-husband. They said, Mary's not drinking anymore. Let her come for her boys for Christmas. She'll check into the Pegasus Hotel and have them for a week. You can check on them every day, but she's not drinking, and she can have the boys for that one special Christmas. And my little boys were so excited, and I bought them all the presents they wanted. And I was full of medication, and I got on the plane in Edmonton, Alberta, and I got off in Toronto to change planes, and I bought a bottle of vodka. And I got on Air Jamaica in Toronto and got off at Kingston, Jamaica. So drunk I couldn't walk. And my little boys were at the airport. He had been been brought there because I had hired a rental car. And they were, I fell down drunk at their feet. And the chaperone said, you won't be seeing mommy this time, boys. And led them away. And when I looked at them, I remember them looking over their shoulder at me with the big eyes of the child of the alcoholic. That is a bafflement for me. And I went to that hotel and I wanted to throw myself out of the ninth floor window. And I called Scotland and spoke to my aunts who had came and took me off Skid Row. And they called my mother, and my mother did not know I was such a hopeless alcoholic. And I did not know she was dying of ovarian cancer. And my mother said to me, Remember your ancestors. Remember the courage of the ancestors and the great women. Remember your grandmother, who had two boys, 21 and 23, killed in World War II and kept going on. Remember the ones that were in the P, your uncles in the POW camps. Think of your father that had that massive injury at Dunkirk. Think of your ancestors and get on that plane and go back home and get sober.
and I got on the plane and I went back. And that was what I thought about. And I held her hand and I repeated the third step prayer after her. God, I offer myself to thee. And from that moment to this, I have had no desire for a drink. William James, who wrote the varieties of religious experience, examined all these dipsomaniacs to see what happened to them. That overnight they had some kind of a spiritual displacement. They came away from being skid row bums to being upstanding members of their community. And he examined them all and interviewed them. And he found the one common denominator in all of them was that they all had suffered a state of absolute and complete despair. And I believe that this absolute and complete despair was my aperture to the spirit. For the healing spirit that is God to come to my sick spirit. Spiritus contra spiritum, spirit against spirit. I don't drink spirit, I take in the spirit. And that was what happened to me. I got very active in AA. I shook a lot. I shook for six months. I had a sponsor called Carol, whom I loved. And she was wonderful to me. And she taught me about... She, she, I saw her the other day at some conference I was doing and they had brought her to see me. It wasn't the other day. That's a Jamaicanization of time soon come. It was actually a couple of years ago. And, <laughs> and, and they, I was doing a 12-step thing up in um, Calgary, and they brought her to see me. And, you know, Carol's the one. I had called her when I was sponsoring these women. I said, Carol, my sponsees are being 13-stepped. I was never 13-stepped. She said, do you remember what you looked like when you came in? <laughs> She said, we used to take you to meetings in a shopping cart. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, 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 and you know, Carol, Carol was so wonderful to me. And, and she did lots of great things for me, I'll tell you. She was just exactly what I needed. And she used to tell me, you know, hold your head up and don't, you know, come in here. You, you, you belong in here. You're as good as all of us. And they got me active very quickly. And I used to go to a meeting in Toronto, and they had a beginner's row, and it was called Shaker's Row. And we'd all sit and shake there, you know. And uh, I remember one day we were all sitting there, and it was still August, and uh, the windows were open, and I can't remember how many, but we were all goofy because we're newly sober, and we've got the pink cloud, and we're shaking together and feeling okay about it, and, um, and trading horror stories, you know, and... Uh, I looked up and either the guy, I can't remember, maybe the guy next to me, looked, he, was, he started looking up at the, the wall and I, I looked up and I saw something up there and I didn't know if it was real or not. And, and eventually we're all, they're all sitting looking like that. And you see, I don't trust their judgment, right? And then Ernie, old Ernie said, it's really there, you know. <laughs> and I learned to trust your perception and not mine. The other, yeah, I had wonderful teachers there, and I, I, got very, I got into the steps immediately. I did my fourth and fifth very quickly because I hated myself. I hated myself. And I wanted to get rid of that stuff because I knew I would not stay sober. And um, did it very quickly. I remember coming out after doing that fifth step and walking over to the sunny side of the street. That's how symbolic it was for me. I could finally stop walking in the shadows. It was a great release for me. And... Um, 
Oh, here's, here's the other messenger. These are my messengers and I share them in all my talks because they meant so much to me. I had never laughed for years. They started to make me laugh. And one day, I was ten, nine months sober, I was looking, they said, you've got to find a God. Bill Wilson cannot be your higher power much longer. Bill's dead. Um, I said, I know that. But, you know, I, I related to Bill and I'd made him a higher power. And they said, you've got to find a God of your own understanding. Because I didn't know what had happened to me when I had said that third step prayer. I had no idea. And uh, anyway, I went about looking for God. And uh, one day I'm at this meeting and I hear this old woman. And she was the most spiritual woman I'd ever heard. And she was saying things like, as a drunken woman, I never went to bed with an ugly man, but I sure woke up with a few. <laughs> She said, but I don't do it anymore because I am a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, Ellen, who is this God you have? I'm looking for a God. She said, Mary, my God's called Harold. I said, Harold? She said, you know that prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. <laughs> she was pulling my leg, but she made me laugh. She made me laugh. And I was to find a God of my own understanding, this wonderful God who by his divine and love and grace has brought me up. And I never take this thing for granted. Every morning for these, oh, soon be 27 years on the 10th of August, which is amazing to me. I, I never take it for granted. I cannot believe on a daily basis that I do not have to drink. Every morning I get up and I say, Dear God, Heavenly Father, please keep me sober this day. Dear God, Heavenly Father, please keep me sane this day. Dear God, Heavenly Father, please walk with me this day and show me the way. I love thee, my God, and without thee I am truly nothing. And at night I will lie down, I will kneel down, and I will tell, thank God for keeping me sober and sane this day. And you know, my gratitude is immense to Canada for giving me sobriety, that I had to go to Canada. My gratitude is immense to the United States of America because if it was not for the freedom of religious thought that you have here, then that we would not have a God of your own understanding and the world would not have Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's just a fact. You know, it is a God of your own understanding that has given us this wonderful thing we have. And when I was on 10 months sober, I got a call that my son was going to be in Toronto for a year schooling. I called into group. Some AA people met my plane. They checked me into the YWCA. I got a little job. I got an apartment. I saw my boy for a month. I met... I was two years sober. I met the love of my life, John. Um, and um, we met at a meeting, and I was two years sober. He was five years sober. He found me very attractive. I fell in love with him. We were both not well. Um, it, you know, it takes us a long time. You know, the, the spiritual awakening in Appendix 2 of the big book is defined as a change of personality. And it took me a long time, and it's still ongoing. It takes forever to have this change of personality. And John was very attracted to me, so he was not well. Um, but he was, he, like me, he was red-hot AA. We loved AA. And my vision was of him and I walking off into the sunset, getting married, walking off into the sunset, under the circle and the triangle, <laughs> with Bill and Bob behind the circle and triangle, up in heaven saying, bless you, my child. And I shared this wonderful vision with my sponsor, Rini. And Rini said, don't get married, you're an emotional retard. <laughs> and I knew she was jealous. <laughs> so John and I eloped. And, um, 
And eventually I had to leave the marriage because it wasn't, we just weren't well enough, but I loved him. And eventually, many years later, he had a stroke and I looked after him. And John could never speak again. He couldn't understand the spoken word. And he had been brilliant, brilliant intellectual fellow. And he had massive brain damage. He couldn't even read anymore. And uh, he had paralysis. And yet he could still draw maps with his left hand because he was so brilliant. And he used to go, love to go to Florida. And I tell a funny little story. Anybody here from Georgia? Um, one time I'm driving him back from Florida because he loved the U.S. and <clears throat> he couldn't speak, but I, he could communicate to me. And um, there's only two words my husband could say, and I can't say them from the podium. <laughs> <clears throat> but what they meant was take a journey. And, um, <laughs> And, and I'm driving, I'm coming up to Florida and we're driving through there and uh, John lets me know that he wants to use the little boy's room and uh, so I started speeding and the cop came and stopped me and I said, you know, you're going doing 120 and 60 or whatever. He said, there'll be a fine for that. I said, would you take a check? And he said, no. And he said, there's a ATM conveniently located next to the police station. And he said, is your husband okay? I said, yeah, he has seriously brain damage and he doesn't talk and we're getting out of the car and the policeman comes to help him because he was crippled and John said his favourite two words and, um, <laughs> and the policeman said I thought you said he couldn't talk I said that's all I can say <laughs> you know and I'd take John to get his medallions and just before he died I, um, I, uh, I read him how it works and I held him till he grew cold and I finished something of worth for another human being. Thank God. And um, my boys, my boys came back to live with me in Canada. And uh, I had gone back to Jamaican sobriety and lived there for a couple of years. Made amends to the island. <laughs> 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 and, um, and then brought my boys. And my boys came um, and, and lived with me for a while till I sent them off to be self-supporting through their own contributions. And... Um, <laughs> My eldest son got married and his father flew up, his father flew from Jamaica and him and I walked my son down the aisle. And um, my other son got married and he danced with, he got, he got married in Scottish traditional dress. And he danced with me to a tune called Mama. And uh, now I have five grandchildren and, um, you know, it's a wonderful thing. But it takes, you know... I was in Aruba this year. My youngest son lives in Aruba uh, with his wife and two kids. It's a beautiful home. and he, it, This was a great trip, this trip. But you see, my youngest son would never talk about my alcoholism. He's 39. He said, I don't want to talk about it, Mom. My other son spoke about it and he had Velbro diarrhea for years <laughs> until he spoke and spoke and spoke and spoke and then he didn't have to speak about it anymore because he spoke it out, you know, and he, he, he got weller. My youngest son keeps it inside. Two years ago, he sent me a ticket to come to Aruba, and I had a wonderful visit, and to show you how deep this illness of alcohol goes in the family. The night before I was leaving, we'd had a wonderful time, and my grandchildren were out playing, and I said, Mark, don't you think you should bring the children in? It's dark outside. And without turning around, he said, so where was I when I was seven, Mum? He was seven when he was taken away from me, and it was like a kick to me but what can I say my poor boy you know what can I say to him what can I say for not having a mother for 13 years 
Right now, I just went through a big thing with my in-laws because they don't like me. I love them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as luck would have it, because my, my son's living in Aruba now, he sold his house in Toronto, and now he lives with my his in-laws when he comes up to Toronto, which is testing my serenity, but I'm good at it. And, um... And I went through this thing the other day, and it became an obsession of the mind. And it was all fear-based that I'm going to lose the love of my grandchildren, I'm going to lose this. And look, beneath it, always low self-esteem. And then I'm thinking, they think I'm an alcoholic, I'm no good, da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and I came out of it within two days, which is great. My other son, his, two, his three little girls, I'm going to have to spend two weeks with them. Every summer I go and I look after them for a couple of weeks. And she's the one that calls me and says, Sean Ma, I love you more than fresh vegetables. <laughs> and she's adorable. You know, the, this journey has been a magnificent journey. I have sponsees who teach me so much. I love my sponsees. They drive me absolutely insane. There is one who I've been working with. She's young and she's trying real hard, but every now and then she just does something. To, the other day, she was going to leave her job. I said, hang in there, do the best you can. And then she got a promotion. So, you know, she did really well. And then so two weeks later, she calls and says, I'm going out with the girls for a day. I said, which girls? AA girls? No, no, the girls that I'm working with. I said, that's, that's okay, that's okay. What are you going to do? Oh, they were going wine tasting. I said, wine tasting? You can't go wine tasting. She said, well, I'm going to wait outside while they're in there. I said, could you come and see me before you make this trip? You know, and she's the one that has a little scrawny little neck that she says in her mouth never stops. And I switch off and I just see the open mouth and this scrawny little neck. And I want to put my arms around it and say, shh. You know? But instead I just say, I love you. <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and I'm very active in AA, and I'm so grateful. It's given me meaning and purpose in my life. And I go to Scotland. My brother, uh, 21 years ago, gave birth to a little boy that had no arms and a club foot. And um, I'm, 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 I never was a sister to my brother, but now I am. And I'm there, I'm there all the time, and he comes and sees me, and we have a great relationship. And he paid a surprise visit to me a few years ago. I said, I'm going to speak in a conference in Ontario. I didn't know you were coming. He said, I'll come with you, sis. And as luck would have it, Dr. Bob's son was speaking that weekend and sat with my brother. And my brother had had a few pops before he came to the meeting, but that was okay. I think he got the message. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, just, just, just you know, to finish up here, I, I am by no means perfect today. You know, it says we strive for spiritual growth, not perfection. And I try. I suffer from an illness called alcoholism. And I am only free from that and contingent on my spiritual condition. To me, it's got nothing to do with drinking. It's to do with the resentments and angers and the things that I can go through on a daily basis if I'm not feeling well. If I'm not in fit spiritual condition one evening, if somebody like these in-laws have called and tested my love, um, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever. You know, I can go to my meeting that night and I can go up to somebody and say, hi, how are you doing? And they don't look at me. And I go and sit down and start thinking about them for the entire meeting. Why did they not say hello back? 
And then I will go home and not sleep that night and think, tomorrow I'm going to find out what meeting they go to and go and say hello again and see if they... <laughs> and inevitably I find out that something horrible had gone on in their life. It's not about me. And, you know, I'll finish with this. This, was, this showed me that what can happen to me under stress. With all the spirituality I tried to achieve for, I'll never be more than a human being that had been fortunate enough to find Alcoholics Anonymous. A couple of years I was speaking, I, got, I was speaking with Clancy and, and Johnny Harris, Johnny H, and it had been a wonderful, wonderful spiritual weekend. And, you know, my feet weren't touching the ground. I just had everything I needed. And I was flying home, and it was, the flight was late. It was about midnight. And there was a lot of turbulence. And um, the woman, I said to the woman next to me, there's a lot of turbulence around today, don't you think? She said, well, you're safer in the air than you are flying. I said, not me, than you are driving. I said, not me, I'm not. I'm in control when I'm driving. Famous last words. <laughs> At that time, I had moved away out to Wasega, which was two hours from the airport. And it was very dark, and there was a lot of fog that night, and I couldn't see driving up this country road. It took me forever to get home. And I was living in a gated community. And when I get into this gated community, I decide to check my mail. It's three-something, I don't know what time it was. And I drive into where all the mailboxes are, and I felt something touch the side of my car, and I thought it was a deer. And I went to put my foot on the brake, and I put it on the accelerator. And I went into the mailboxes, all of them, 300, crashing all around me. And the parapet coming down on top of my van. What is my first thought? Self, get the hell out of here. I drive home, get into the garage. The garage comes down. I look at that. There's no front left on my car. And then God says, Mary, you have to go back to the scene of the accident. That's your fault. You can't run away. So I called a fellow called Dave C., a member that lived three doors down, and Dave came with me. And um, he walked with me, and all the neighbors were up in their housecoats, standing outside these mailboxes, saying, it must have been a drunk. (laughs) I made amends. As I say, I am as baffled today by alcoholism as I have ever been. I am so grateful that I have a program that allows me to live with some ease and comfort in the world. When people come and tell me that normal people feel like the way I do, it means nothing to me, because normal people do not have the ability to immediately change the way they feel with a drop of alcohol. They don't know what it is like to have this thing that only 6 or 7% of the population of the world has inside of them. I am so grateful to have a God of my own understanding and to have had a means to make amends to my family and to be of some worth to my children and to my community. And I like the thing about picking up the garbage. And even when I'm in dress stores and something on the ground, I'll pick it up. Because Bill Wilson said we should become citizens of the world. And that's what I try to do. Thank you for having me here. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.